Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 216 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we are a week outside of the launch of my brand new book, Didn't See It Coming. Thank you so much for such a generous response. And you know what my favorite part is? My favorite part is reading the reviews and just getting messages. We've had hundreds of them from people who have read the book, either they pre-read early copies or they're reading the initial copies of the book as they get distributed. And you guys are letting me know that this is making a huge difference in your life. And I I just want to say thank you. Some of you said, you know, you cried almost all the way through it. Uh, Good tears, uh, tears where you kind of realize, wow, I'm more cynical than I thought, but I don't need to stay cynical. Others, it's helping you get through burnout. It's helping you battle down insecurity and pride. It's helping you reconnect to the people that you love. And, And that's sort of the goal, right? I want you guys to thrive in life and leadership. And so the book is really personal, the most personal of all the books that I've written. But it's also, I I hope, helpful, and I hope it feels like hope to you. I also hope it's a kind of book that, and we're seeing this now, like I, I got messages this morning as I'm recording this from people saying, hey, I ordered 10 more copies. I ordered 20 more copies. Like you're sharing this with people close to you. And some of you are starting to share it with people who maybe don't have your faith commitment, which is amazing because that's what I wrote, you know, with the book in mind. I I wrote a kind of book that I hope you would hand to your neighbor who maybe doesn't follow Jesus or or have any faith or has a different faith, a different understanding than you do. Um, The book is, is definitely a Christian perspective, but I wanted to write it in a way that if you didn't share that perspective, you would still appreciate the book and maybe, maybe, maybe it would lead people to Jesus. So anyway, that's, uh, that's the heart behind Didn't See It Coming. Now today what I'm going to do is I had our launch team for this book. We picked a handful of people, uh, kind of self-selected, and I had them do a Q&A with me. So I want to walk you through some of the mechanics of a launch team and what that means. So one of the things I learned years ago as I got into writing is that uh, publishers don't sell books authors do. And I think that's true. I've done three books prior to this with Orange Books. They've been incredible. And we've had our own little ninja launch team for those books. Uh, But with this one, I went with a a major publisher. So it's Waterbrook in Colorado Springs and their parent company is Penguin. And New York has been involved with this book. They're pretty excited about it as well uh, for its broader potential. And so even though this book is published through one of the largest publishers in the world, Uh, you still have to do an awful lot as an author. So I want to share a little bit about that with you. Then we'll get into the Q&A because I know a lot of you are like, well, how do you get traction online? Like, think about it, even if you're not writing books, like how do you get people to, to spread the word online, whether that's for your church, for your business, what does that look like? So here's what we did. The publisher and I decided that we were going to try to create a launch team. And there is a debate about how big your launch team should be. So a launch team is basically people who are going to read the book in advance and in exchange promise to get the word out. That's it. And a lot of people would say, hey, three to 400 people is plenty. But the general rule, I think, is that about 10 to 20 of 20% of, of whoever you recruit are probably going to deeply engage. So I said, why don't we go crazy and why don't we try to shoot for 2,000 people? And the publisher said, gulp, okay. So in July, the book came out September 4th. In July, I sent out an email to like, uh, well, I guess, I think, did I send it to the whole list? So it might've been 40,000. Yeah, it was, it was to the whole list. And I said, hey, you have till Friday to join the launch team. Well, by Friday, we had 2,000 people who had signed up, which was incredible. It kind of like, oh, okay, we got 2,000 people who signed up. 1,800 of them actually made it to a private Facebook group, which was good. So we only lost, 10%, 10%, it was like 1,840 or 50, made it to a Facebook group, a secret closed Facebook group. And that's where we did all the work for this launch. So that started in early to mid-July for a September 4th launch. And we wanted to get everybody in that group an early copy of the book. So we had printed just over 2,000 galley copies, like advanced reader copies. So everybody in the group got either a digital copy, if they were not in the United States, if they were in the U.S., they got shipped an actual physical copy of the book, an early reader copy, and uh, they read it in the month of July. 
and we engaged. That was their mission at the beginning. And then we started in the pre-release period because pre-release sales sort of builds momentum. We started to share uh, about the book. I encouraged them to, to share their experiences and Anna LeBaron ran or is running, I guess it's still going, the launch group. And she did an incredible job. We also had uh, encouraged people to write a review on Goodreads because Amazon will not let you post reviews prior to the release of a book. So the first reviews that can be posted on Amazon happened on release day, September 4th. So Goodreads doesn't have that restriction. So we posted almost 200 reviews to Goodreads prior to launch, which was great. I th actually, I think we went over 200, which again is a 10% rule, which is really, you know, one of my learnings in this. It's like, okay, you got 2000 people in the group, 200 people posted reviews. Just remember that. So whether, you know, adjust your numbers accordingly, if it's 200 people, you might get 20 who are hyper-engaged. If you, if you have 20 people, you might get two or three who are hyper-engaged. So just remember that. I, I'm a believer in a wider net. And then you find your raving fans inside of them. So probably I would think in the Facebook group as a whole, over the course of the two months that the group's been together so far, maybe half of the group is engaged, but you got your super fans who are maybe 10 to 20%. The other thing we did was we produced a lot of digital assets. And if you follow me on social, you would have seen those. Everything from the reviews by readers got put on to nice little social squares that you can share on Instagram to quotes from the book. We produced over a hundred quotes for the book uh, that were just beautifully graphically designed with some of the book artwork. And a lot of the members of the team shared that. So the book did really well in pre-orders. We uh, kind of exceeded our goals in pre-orders. And then on launch day, we just kind of blitzed everything in, in launch week. And the book quickly shot. It was a number one in August. It was a number one new release pretty much all month in August in Christian leadership. And then on launch day and through launch week, uh, the book quickly rose within hours to the number one best-selling book, not just the number one new release, but the number one best-selling book in Christian leadership. And actually for a while, it may still be the case when you know this airs, you can check it yourself on Amazon. We've held the number one, number two, and number three spots as a bestseller and a new release in Christian leadership and the number one most wished for book in Christian leadership, which is incredible. And, and why did that happen? Well, I have a fairly large audience in this podcast and also on my blog, lots of traffic, but it really, it really starts to spread when you invite other people into the journey. And, you know, even engaging with that launch team, They've, they've been a fascinating group because a lot of them are like, man, this is a masterclass in launch. So, you know, they, they signed up thinking they were going to help me. But in the end, and, and this was my secret goal, I wanted to teach them everything I knew about writing a book, launching a book, and how they could translate those leadership lessons into their own context. So it's been a great journey. And, I, you know, you, you, you guys are smart. You can figure out what you do with your own team. I mean, whether that's finding 20 or 30 people or 200 people at your own church who just love what you're doing or in your own business who love what you're doing and don't mind sharing the word. And again, if you give them different ways to share it, I mean, if, if your whole social media presence is buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, nobody's going to buy your book. They're going to get annoyed. They're going to unfollow you. Uh, but if you're adding value uh, it can really help. Another thing that we did during launch week, surprise, surprise, just taking you under the hood is guess what? We released six podcast episodes. So again, if there's six podcast episodes, and this is number six where it's like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. People are going to be like, I'm not listening to that. So what did we do? Well, I said every once in a while, a couple times a year, maybe once or twice a year, I'll flip the mic and let someone interview me. So on launch day and Voskamp, uh, came on board and she interviewed me in this 90 minute interview we did face to face. And then I was talking to my agent, Esther Federikevich, who has been a guest on this podcast. And if you really want to go behind the scenes in publishing and in publishing, I should say, she was on last December. I'm just looking up the episode number now. She is episode number. Oh, Esther's episode was so good. Uh, 170. Episode 170, Esther Federikevich from the, the Fed Agency. If you ever wanted to write a book, you've got to listen to that one. 
Uh, but Esther said, well, why don't we get some other people to talk about what they didn't see coming in leadership? So that gave birth to an interview backstage with Erwin McManus and another one with Levi and Jenny Lusko, which we shared last week on this podcast. And again, they talked about what they didn't see coming. Now, the thing is, you can never buy my book. Those were fantastic interviews. Like if you listen to that launch independent, you're like, wow, there's some great tools there. Similarly with this week, we had Nancy Duarte just sort of back to regularly scheduled things. Then yesterday we gave away a chapter of the audiobook. Again, you don't have to buy my book, but hopefully that was helpful to you. So I think the whole goal of the launch is if you can provide insights, if you can help people, if you can, and, and you know, whether they buy your book or not, I, they want, I want them to walk away feeling like, you know what, you added value. And I want all 2,000 members or 1,850 members of the launch team to walk away going, that was a great experience and I learned so much. So that's a little bit about my philosophy behind a launch team and a bit of the deconstruction behind the launch. And once again, in this episode, we flipped the mic and uh, these people, we had been together in the launch team for about six or eight weeks at this point. And I just said, okay, you guys pick my brain and ask some questions. So we have a handful of people who are doing that as representative from the launch team. And that's what you're going to hear next. Then I'll come back and wrap up and tell you where you can learn more. And by the way, if you want to know more about the book, you can find it all at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. So just go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Uh, Didn't See It Coming is available anywhere you buy books. And in the meantime, here is the conversation between the launch team and me. Well, I'm really excited to have uh, some people who have been part of our launch team, launch team members for Didn't See It Coming on this bonus episode of the podcast. And it's pretty exciting. We've got Adam, Dylan, Esther, Gabriel, John, and Sam. You guys have been sort of selected, moved forward by the group to do this bonus episode. And what's really exciting is all of you have read the book. You're part of the launch team. We have over 1,800 people who are part of the launch team. And I thought it'd be kind of fun for those of you who have read the book, uh, because most listeners haven't by this point, to sort of ask some questions and take it a little bit deeper and uh, get some of the backstory. So Esther, you're going to lead us off. So go ahead, introduce yourself and ask question number one. All right. Thanks, Carrie. So I'm Esther from Maine, a big fan of the podcast. And I uh, love the book and I can see how it definitely helps people who are open to learning and growing and want to fend off cynicism and burnout and things like that. But I've been thinking a lot about the people in my life who are already there, who are already in a place of cynicism or burnout or they're disconnected. And so how can we as ministry or business leaders, you know, help those people or connect with those people who are already in that place uh, without hurting ourselves or exposing ourselves to a lot of their toxic, uh, you know, <laughs> feelings or <laughs> attitudes? <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting question, you know, Esther, because I think I think I have the assumption and and I hope it's well placed. The book is going to help people who want to get better, right? There are definitely some people who don't want to get better. It's funny when we were thinking about the audience for this group, you know, I I originally thought it was church leaders and then people read the idea and they went, "No, no, no, it's not church leaders, it's bigger than that." And then, you know, we thought it was okay, it's outside the church. I mean, I used to be a lawyer. I I wrote it with the view that you could maybe hand it to people. But where we landed at the end of the day when we were getting ready for the final manuscript, and it was edited with that in mind, is that we want this to be a book for people, um, but probably people who are interested in improvement. So um, my, my thought was I, years ago, not quite when it first came out, but probably back in the 90s, I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Actually, it was a reread for me. I reread it again a couple years ago. And I thought, okay, that is the person we're targeting. And so who reads The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Well, ministry people, business people, entrepreneurs, honestly, stay-at-home parents. And you know what it boils down to? It's kind of like, do you want to get well? It's that question Jesus asked in John chapter 5. So the first thing I would do is I would kind of look at the person that you're dealing with, interacting with, and, and sort of ask yourself the question, does this person want to get well? And you might even ask them that. Like, I know when I got cynical, there's an inevitability to these seven things that we tackle in the book that I think if you're not careful, 
you can just say, well, this is just how it is. Like everybody gets cynical. At some point you burn out. You probably never get your mojo back. You're never going to feel great again. Boy, isn't it fun to be young. And, and, and listen, there's a lot of young people burning out too. So don't get me wrong. So I would probably, I would probably look for that. And I think one of the other things, Esther, and I'd love it if you got a follow-up on this, but I would, I would try to engage the conversation and see if they're looking to get better. You know, if you think about a medical doctor, you know, I, I don't tell this story in the book, but years ago, I, I've told my church this story. It was in my early 30s. I went to my doctor and, you know, I put on a few pounds and business was, your know, church rather was really busy and I just was tired all the time. And I went to him at like 31, 32, young kids running around the house. I said, I'm just exhausted all the time. Like, fix me. And he says, can I ask you some questions? I said, sure. And he said, so question number one, are you getting eight hours of sleep a night? And I'm like, like, seriously, who gets eight hours of sleep a night? I got two young kids. I got growing churches. Like, leave me alone. And then he said, are you eating healthy? And it's like, like you mean Dairy Queen? <laughs> like, no, I'm not eating healthy. It's busy. And then he said, are you exercising? And I'm like, well, my wife exercises. Like, does that count? And, and he just looked at me and he said, look, get eight hours of sleep at night, exercise, and eat healthy. And at that point, I wanted to fire him and because and, I wanted a pill. I just like, give me a pill and I'll feel better and I can just, you know, live irresponsibly. But that was really good advice. And all these years later, you know, guess what? I'm trying to get eight hours of sleep a night. I'm eating better and I'm exercising. I'm going to go for a bike ride when this podcast is done. You know, so, so it's one of those things where I think that is the key question. And if the answer is yes, then I think you can have a conversation based on this book, hand him a copy of the book, because there are, this isn't a complete cure, but there are clues, there are breadcrumbs to the way back. Like um, just deciding to believe again, hope again, trust again, and staying curious because the curious are never cynical and the cynical are never curious. Those really have been part of the regeneration of my own life, you know, but if you talked to me at 39, I would have said, oh, I'll never be, you know, as uncynical as I was 15 years ago. I think I'm probably, you know, I, 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 I know what life is like, but I, I can see looking down the road, like, I hope my optimism is growing every year, not shrinking. Does that help, Esther? Yeah, yeah, that definitely helps. And I, I love the idea of asking the question, if, you know, trying to dig into whether they're even <laughs> open to change. So my follow-up question would be, any pointers on good ways to ask those questions or specific questions to ask with someone oh, yeah. who may already be a little bit edgy, a little bit rough around the edges. Yeah. That to discover Bouses, that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Esther. Yeah. No, I know, I know what you mean. And I think we've all been on the receiving end of that person who just hands us a book and it's like, read it. I don't know about you guys, but like that is never a fun experience for me. When somebody hands me a book, it feels like judgment. So maybe what I would do rather than just handing them the book is I would start a conversation and maybe it starts as easily as, how are you? And not settling for like the cheap answer, but just like, how are you doing? And just, just see what they tell you and say, well, how long have you felt this way? And then maybe drill down a little bit more with them and go, you know, are you, are you okay? Are you really okay? Well, actually, no, you know, it's not good. I don't like my job anymore. I'm, it's tough at home. I, I just feel disconnected. I, I feel like I'm not making a difference. And I think when you get into that kind of authentic back and forth, I wonder, Esther, if you can, um, at that point, if that becomes a segue to, huh, well, you know, I struggle with some of the same things. So you show a little bit of empathy and then they go, oh, really? What, what has helped you? And then you can tell them from your own story. And maybe at that point, you know, bring up something you read in the book or say, hey, you want to borrow my copy or can I get you a copy or something like that? And to me, that always feels a lot less judgmental because you've actually whetted the appetite before you bring the, the, the prescription. Do you know what I mean? Sorry to mix metaphors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's great. Thank you. I'm the king of mixed metaphors, by the way. So, um, okay. And who else? Who else has got a question? Who wants to go next? Okay, so my name is Sam Linton, and I'm a pastor in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. I've been an uh, associate pastor for 15 years at the same church. 
And uh, my question has to do with burnout because um, mm. I felt like you were in my head when you were writing that chapter. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I just uh, wanted to know when the ministry context is the way that it is, when it gets busier and busier, like if you're in the middle of a high season and you recognize the symptoms of burnout, how do you how do you treat them when you know that the ministry is just getting busier and the ministry is just expanding? Like, how do you kind of put the brakes on and really start to look at yourself? Now, I appreciate the question, Sam, and it's a tough one. Um, I mean, I there's how I used to answer it, and there's how I answer it now. So pre-burnout, it was like, pedal to the metal, man. Just work harder. You know, more people, more opportunities equals more hours. And, you know, that's what got me burnt out. That's what pushed me into the ditch because you're not a robot. Like you're, you're a human being. And I mean, if you look at it spiritually, you know, God, and I, I still struggle with this, but you know, I'm not God. No, that's not the part I struggle with. I have no problem with that. But I mean, when, when I think about like the way God designed life, this is the part I struggle with. He wants us to spend one seventh of it resting. And then he throws holidays in on top of that. Plus, he throws in about eight hours of sleep every night. So you look at how much time you're off, and it just is the opposite of our culture and like driven people. So here's what I've learned to do on the other side of burnout, you know, and and what I share in the book, I think in that chapter, is I had to figure out how to live to today in a way that would help me thrive tomorrow. So let let me give you an, an example. You know, book launch is almost as intense as writing a book. Dylan can attest to that. True? Yes, Dylan? I can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dylan's one of my team members and he's in on this call. But I mean, we're, we're in high gear and this is high season right now. And so what I have to do is I have to program in hard stops because if I don't program in hard stops, um, I'm just going to keep working. So literally when I get off this call, I'm going to jump on my bike and then I'm going to have dinner with my family. So I'll do a one hour ride or so. Then I'll have dinner with my family. Then I might go back at it for an hour or so. And again, Dylan can attest to the fact that this is true. At the beginning of the summer, we're recording this at the end of the summer. At the beginning of the summer, my wife and I sat down and we put significant blocks of time, evening, Saturdays, and I wrote into my calendar, friends and family. Isn't that what it says, Dylan? It's just friends and family. And what that means is we get to, he's nodding, but yeah, his mic is muted. But anyway, um, we, we'll have barbecues, we'll go out on the boat, we'll hang out with friends. And I know if I don't do that, I will just find, you know, new ways to work. Another thing I've done is I've developed a hobby and my hobby takes time. It's, it's grilling on the big green egg. You can't do a pulled pork in two hours. I mean, that's going to take you four or five hours. Now, not four or five hours at the grill. I didn't have any hobbies before I burned out. I didn't have a whole lot of margin built into my calendar. I'm pretty crazy about my bedtime. I really do. I don't know who said it, but you know, this whole idea that 70% of discipleship is a good night's sleep. So true. If I am rested and I can recalibrate and I get seven or eight hours, I'm way better than if I'm running on fumes. So those are, I mean, busy seasons are going to come. I'm in one right now. I just finished teaching yesterday, and two weeks from now, I'm back up with a fresh series. So, I mean, I'm in the thick of it, but I've got all these hard stops programmed into my life. And even if I've got a really like tough, intense day, then I can go, okay, I got a two-hour oasis. Uh, another thing I've done, and I know this doesn't make any sense, but uh, Fridays are just off. Nobody's allowed to book anything without my specific permission. And um, it's all the stuff I teach in the High Impact Leader, but it really makes a difference. And it means that, you know, here in this launch window, I actually feel pretty good when I wake up in the morning. So Sam, does that help at all? That Those are some things I'm doing because otherwise work is just going to fill up your life. Yeah, it definitely helps. And just one follow-up to that. So when yeah. you talk about communicating to your staff about the hard stops and nobody can, and I, I took your High Impact class too, by the way, oh, which cool. was awesome. Really, really help with the schedule. But how do you communicate specifically when you're in these seasons? Like, do you think it's better to have that conversation up front with staff members to say, look, like, I just feel like, you know, I'm burning the candle at both ends. And I feel that I, 
I just really want to make sure that we guard this time? Or do you just block it off like it's an appointment? Or how, how do you go about that without making it awkward or causing yeah. tension? If, you know or being I mean? that difficult person that nobody wants right. to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question. And, you know, the way I would handle that, again, because you're associate, you're not the senior leader, is I would say to your senior leader, hey, I start with the outcome. I want to serve you really, really well. And I want to run into the season with a lot of energy. So I'm looking at my calendar and I'm wondering if it's possible if I could A, B, C, D. And just ask it as a question rather than a demand, uh, a desire rather than uh, a demand, and see what he or she has to say. The other thing I would focus on, and I wish I had taught this in the High Impact Leader course. I don't think I had because I've answered the question, I think, 500 times since the course came out. A lot of people are like, I don't have any control. I have like 40 hours a week. That's it. And, you know, my boss tells me what to do and I go do it. Um, I would focus on, so let's say that's your scenario, which I know it's not, Sam, but let's say that's your scenario. If that's your scenario, then what I would do is I would, I would focus on the 148 hours that you have available to you. Now, that's not quite right. 128 hours that you have available to you. And I would, I would say, okay, I have no control over this 40, which is probably not true. But let's say you didn't. I have 128 hours I have control over. So what can I do in those 128 hours? Nobody makes you go to bed at a certain time every night. That's almost totally in your control unless you have newborns. Um, you know, theoretically, you have a day or two off. If you don't, that's a whole other conversation. And, um, you know, you're responsible for those 128 hours and how you use them. So I would focus on that. Thank you. That's perfect. Thank you. Cool. Okay. Who else? Who's next? Who's got another question? Uh, hi, Kerry. This is uh, John from Norway. Um, as you know, I'm working as a, a consultant to the United Methodist Church in Norway on uh, mm-hmm. church development. And um, I have this question for you. First, let me thank you for this Great uh, Rethink Leadership Conference in Atlanta. That was really good. The conference was, was good a lot of fun, really wasn't it? To, to mm-hmm. meet. Yeah, that was really good. The, when I read the book, it was kind of uh, hitting me in the head, uh, in my heart, and in the gut. <laughs> that was really taking it all uh, all down. And Total as I read down. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I I kind of um, feel I, I would like to share that with. Um, pastors and um, and friends and you partly answered it with with esther's answer but giving it away would be like um just passing them the book isn't a good thing but um if i was kind of uh, reading a card to the, or, or writing a card to them or or uh, giving them an advice to read a book uh, what would what would the thing be on that card that you would uh, say um advising them to, to, do, to do the book or to read the book. Yeah, I think if it's just a friend or a colleague that you're not in a formal work relationship with, it might be, you know, just, hey, I found this really helpful. I know you've got a really busy schedule. Um, the chapter on X really spoke to me. You might want to start there. Hope this helps, John, something like that. The <laughs> other thing I did, like always as a, as a lead pastor when I was in that seat, was we always did book study together. I mean, I, I, I just interviewed Patrick Lencioni for this podcast, and I told Pat, mm-hmm. like, I've been reading your books for years, and we did team study through his books. We've done, gosh, just we always had a book on the go. And sometimes it was a ministry book. Sometimes it was a marketplace book. But um, if, you, if you've got, like, a, a pastoral circle that you have, I would initiate book study. And mine always went way too long. I would spend an hour and a half talking about a book with, mm. with, with my team, and it would take like a year to get through it. They used to complain all the time. But uh, man, we learned a lot together. And I think, yeah. I think for, you know, if you don't have a book club with your immediate team, you should start one. Uh, I asked my team here on the podcast and the blog to read through essentialism this summer. So I'm looking forward to a discussion with them. Mm. I've read through that with our staff. Um, they're just like, literally, I got a bookshelf behind me and there are dozens of books that have been team reads. And I think a reading organization is a growing organization. And that's one very non-threatening way to get some of the issues raised 
And at the end of the day, you want to help people. Like, you know, if you get healthy people, because the book is all about sort of the internal battles we fight as leaders, you get a healthy team going and things are going better at home and better in their lives and better with God and they're rested and they're feeling better. You have a better organization because people are bringing their best game. So those are some thoughts on maybe how to approach that. Mm, very good. I, um, I'm just back from uh, Orlando on uh, John Maxwell uh, leadership training, and then they, they're actually doing this uh, book study. So maybe I shouldn't say it here that I might switch one of the John Maxwell books and take you for a study <laughs> with the group. Actually, John's uh, five levels, what is it, five levels of a team or whatever, that was one of my favorite book studies we did. Five levels of leadership, that's what it was. That is a fantastic book. But yeah, and and again, you know, if if you're doing two or three books a year or a book a month or whatever your pace happens to be, that is a great way to make sure your team keeps reading. Yeah, we'll make a mastermind of uh, of your book. I, I have one follow-up yeah, question go on ahead. this connection. Because that's one of the situations that many of my colleagues, um, as one, uh, the churches in Norway are not that big, so they maybe have one employee, one pastor per place. And you talk about um, quoting you that we've never been more connected as a culture, yet we never felt more disconnected. And as a culture, the more connected we become, the more isolated we grow have grown. Yeah. So, uh, and that's the situation we see with pastor. They are, they are not only isolated because they are so busy with getting connected uh, everywhere, but um, with all of us, we, we keep our nose in the phone and we get so occupied and connected with everyone, and yet we feel more isolated than ever. What is your, what is your advice for like, um, pastors, leaders that really feels uh, lonely and, and, and alone? Yeah, uh, human connection is really important. And uh, you should have someone like my wife in your life. She's always making me like come out of the backyard and go meet actual people and get offline. It's fantastic. So, um, yeah, but you know, that human connection, I was at a party yesterday afternoon with about 20, 25 people and we're driving away. And I just said to my wife, Tony, like, that was fun. And I think we live in an age where we instinctively just want to kind of separate. I, I drove in prior to this meeting, had a team meeting in person. Did I really need to be there? No, it could have been virtual, but it was really good to be there. We talked about the last series, teed up the next series at the church, and it was good to be there in person. And uh, increasingly, it feels like that is something you need to make yourself do, um, that it's almost becoming a self-discipline to connect with people. And I mean, you can read some of the studies I was reading. Uh, I don't want to get it wrong. I'm reading numerous books, but uh, Tom Rath's Emotional Well-Being or his book Well-Being talks about that loneliness and isolation. And this isn't in my book, but I mean, there's tons of research on this is, you know, an isolated person, it's the equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or something um, <laughs> that, that this actually has, because, you know, think about it. This shouldn't surprise anybody who's a Christian. But the primary purpose of life is centered on relationship. It's love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is 100% when Jesus summarized the purpose of life, he summarized it relationally in, in respect of our relationship with God and relationship with each other. So it shouldn't really surprise us at all that that is what God um, wants us to do. But our culture, I think it's almost like an artificial connection, John. Like, it's pretty cool that you're in Norway, I'm in Canada, and most of the rest of the people on this call are in the U.S. Like, that's really awesome. And it's great relationships. Some of my best friends live a million miles away. But the challenge is, those are relationships, but they're not as deep and they're not as vulnerable as when you're getting together face-to-face, -face, you know, actual people. Mm, and it's weird, you know, again, I don't think I put this in the book, but um, I've always encouraged leaders to do the driveway test. Like we have people in and out of our driveway all the time, friends coming over, people hanging out, we're throwing parties, we got, you know, a barbecue happening. And I look up and down my street, we're the busiest driveway. I had to tell my neighbor who's a cop when we moved in here that we're not drug dealers, that we just, we have a lot of friends and we work at a church. And you look at most people, they're alone all the time. And so I think you just have to fight gravity on that one. Oh, that's great. Okay, other questions. Who's next? Yes, Carrie. 
I'm Adam from Williamstown, Kentucky. And the question I have, as you're leading through change and you have people that are so cynical, how do you deal with those people and keep from being cynical yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, cynicism is almost a disease, isn't it? Like it totally is. And, and it has, it's almost like it's infected the water supply. So how do you make sure that they don't just rub off on you? Um, I think it's an internal discipline. And for me, the key insight on that was that I need to see life for what it really is, because that's, that's where cynicism comes from. It sources knowledge. It's like, oh, it really is tough. Oh, it really is awkward. Oh, it's bad. And yes, people leave. And yes, friends betray you. And let yes, your heart gets broken. But what happens to most of us is our heart shrinks in those moments, and we never intentionally re-expand it. And so what I realized I had to do was I had to see life for what it really is. Yeah, don't be an idiot. There are bad people out there. Uh, Things do go awry sometimes. But I've got to keep my heart fully engaged. I have to hope again. I have to believe again. I have to trust again. And when I feel my heart getting cynical, like when I feel that, Adam, I have to like, and I've done this at times, you know, once or twice I've like metaphorically in prayer kind of just imagined my heart being in my hands and I offered it back up to God. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I could get hurt this time, but I'm I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to believe you. And like, it's continually re-engaging that, but that's where the hope comes from. And you know, it's interesting this year as I've, I've, I've been, I had a few little breaks here and there and I find as my batteries recharge that I will just start talking to strangers in in a fun kind of way. I remember we had the privilege of being in Hawaii for a conference and a little bit of a break earlier this year. And, you know, the guy in the condo next to us was loading his uh, surfboard and it was a different kind of surfboard. And I just started talking to him about the surfboard. And, you know, we had this long conversation just as he was packing up his car and I was packing up mine. And I'm like, well, that's kind of fun. And you know what? Cynical people don't do that. Cynical people make stories up in their head about, you know, why he's going to crash on his surfboard or whatever. And there was a season in my life where I never would have done that. And you just have to intentionally decide to re-engage. And, you know, if cynicism is going to be their story, I think, Adam, you just have to say to yourself, you know what, as for me and my house, that's not my story. I'm going to trust. I'm going to hope. I'm going to believe. I'm going to stay curious. I am not letting myself get cynical. And for me, that's worked for 12 years. So maybe, yeah, yeah, about 12 years. And I find my heart growing. And constant learning. Tim Ferriss did a podcast with a guy named George Raveling that I listened to recently. He's an 80-year-old African-American basketball coach. This guy at 80 spent most of the two-hour interview talking about how much he has to learn, how he's reading multiple books a week, and how he's just trying to stay fresh and curious. And I'm like, I want to be like him. When I'm 80, I want to be like him. And I think the cynic is the know-it-all. The cynic is the, I don't need to read, I need to write books. Well, I guess I just wrote a book. But anyway, you know, I got I to gotta keep reading. I got to keep reading. So I think, I think that's a big difference is just keep that curiosity and that openness up. That's awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Other questions? And you guys, you can ask more than one. So dive in. So this is Gabe uh, or Gabriel from Illinois, and um, you know I I really enjoyed the book the the specifically the chapter on character, mm-hmm. and as I'm reading that chapter, um, you know there are there were certain things that really resonated with me, but then also resonated with some things I've been walking through with people who are either on staff or serving on a team at at the church I'm at. Um, and, and Carrie, I guess my question for you, cause I know your, your background, you know, a lot of what you focus on is, is helping churches break that 200 barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those of us who are at, at churches that are larger and, and we have teams, um, you know, where, so I, I myself am, am responsible for uh, around 50 to 60 volunteers on my team and which is awesome, but it's a huge responsibility. And what that means is I'm walking through, tons of stuff with them having to do with their character and, and decisions they're making and things that come to my attention. And so, um, I ended up discussing that chapter with, um, the people on, on our staff and the, what, what we kind of really drilled down on was discussing compromises people make. 
mm-hmm. and how when you make a compromise, uh, even a small compromise, it leads to a larger compromise. You know, the the story I always think of is David and Bathsheba. And, <laughs> you know, David didn't just decide the first time he saw Bathsheba that he was going to murder her husband. Um, but small compromises right. led to bigger compromises, led to bigger compromises. So I guess my question would be, how do you navigate that? How do you set good expectations for your church staff, for your team, for volunteers? Because it it gets messy and there's so much context involved with with a lot of those those types of things. So I'll, I'll shut up and let you kind of no, unpack that, I guess. Gabe, that's a great question. And I love that you care about your volunteers at that level, because I think that's really important. And yeah, I do, I do spend a lot of time helping churches. It's the majority of churches break through the 200 barrier. But like you, you know, we're around 1500 these days, and that's a lot of people and a lot of responsibility and hundreds of volunteers. And so what that eventually becomes is, is a culture issue, right? And maybe you have a church culture you're trying to form, some values that you have, but at the end of the day, you're the sum part of your people. Like that is what your church is. Your church is basically your people. And if your people are making moral compromises, that impacts your church. So I think, you know, when I think through that, number one, it it starts with me. And so I would look deep in the mirror, Gabe, and I would go, okay, where am I compromising? And, you know, in that chapter, I talk about it's a thousand little compromises because it's easy to eliminate the big stuff. I mean, you would think we could get, you know, a fair proof our marriages or whatever. But, you know, a lot of us would say, yeah, I haven't had an affair and I haven't stolen money and I'm not part of the mafia and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So great. We checked all those big boxes. But like you say, it's the little things that, and even if there's nothing ever that big in your life, it's the little things that really lead to diminished trust, to a lack of self-respect, to a lack of other people respecting you. And even that feeling that you didn't even give it your best shot. And so one of the things that really helped me, and this is just a little hack I talk about, is being ridiculously honest with myself to try to narrow that gap between my public talk and my private walk. Because what often happens in leadership is we say things are better than they really are. And I, I, I called myself on that a number of years ago. And I don't get it right every day, but I try to make sure that the words that come out of my mouth uh, accurately and appropriately reflect reality. And if I'm ashamed or embarrassed to talk about what's really happening privately, that is a flare to me of what's, you know, what's wrong and what I've got to address and what I've got to confess. So, so I think that helps with that. And then secondly, I think making that part of your dialogue, like what you did in bringing people together, that's a really good move. Because if you make that part of your dialogue and you can just make that part of your culture, culture is as much caught as it is taught. So if they know that that's a, and you know, the book hopefully gives you some language around that right? Work twice as hard on your character as uh, you do on your competency. And if that becomes part of the dialogue, I th- and people even have permission to talk about it. Like generally speaking in their day jobs, most of your volunteers are not having that discussion at work. <laughs> and who are you going to have it with? So I think if you broker that discussion at church, you can, you can infect and affect their entire lives to the point where they're better parents, they're better spouses, they're better workers at their day job, and you get a better church culture uh, as well. Did, did, that, did that come close to answering the question, Gabe, or is there more? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I, th- no, that, that's great. And I, I think what, I've, what I have discovered has, has been, you know, we have— um, but people who, who serve in, in church, you, you've got everyone from um, baristas at a coffee shop to people who run their own businesses. Yep. And so when you've got that kind of, uh, that kind of variety in socioeconomic backgrounds, and, and then you've got cultural backgrounds that are different and everything else that goes uh, with that. Um, what, what I have found helps me is to make sure I'm setting a good precedent myself. And, and you're right. I mean, it is, it's tough as a leader, especially in the age of social media and, You've got um, people who feel like they need to put out a certain image on Instagram, yeah. um, you know, or Facebook, and then uh, you know, but but it's it's not true. And so that there was there was one particular part of that chapter where you talk about living two lives, and and you've got one life at home 
and one life at church. And that's something, um, again, I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to remind myself every day, but also walk through with staff and volunteers because that's tough. And the temptation is, you know, if you're at church to, to make sure everyone knows or, or feel like you should make everyone know you've got it all together. Um, because for whatever reason, maybe that'll help you communicate the gospel of Jesus better. And, uh, I think what I'm discovering is that's not, <laughs> that's not the yeah. case at all. Gabriel, you know what's interesting is I actually think our culture is demanding the opposite. That if you're putting, right. and you, you got to be careful with appropriate vulnerability, but if you're always projecting the image that you've nailed it and your marriage is perfect, um, people go, I can't relate to that. Like, thank you very much. And if that's true, I'm really happy for you, but like, you should come to my house. And, you know, we're doing a, a November relationship series at our church, and my wife, Tony, and I, we're going to do the marriage uh, week one together. And we're talking about our marriage, and we're going to talk about the bad parts, the parts where we weren't sure we were going to make it, where we were arguing a lot. And, you know, we're, we're not in that season right now, but we have been in that season. And we want to be really honest, because for some really strange reason, that actually gives people hope. Like, I know we talked about it years ago once the first time and like people came up with tears in their eyes, just so grateful because there's so much spin in the world. People want to know what's real. And you know what I do, which is my favorite platform right now on social is Instagram and it's Insta stories. And so I pretty much narrate my life through Insta stories. My kids are grown now and they've actually fed back to me and said, you know, dad, you're a bit of a goof, but like your goofiness actually shows through on your Insta stories. Like that is actually you behind the scenes. And sometimes it's really dumb. I'm like, hey, thanks. That's a compliment, you know, but there is a sense in which you you want the real you to come through in your preaching. And so now I think there's appropriate vulnerability um, there's some things you should probably talk about with your spouse and with your counselor before you trot that out in public. But, you know, for the most part, you, you, you just, you just want to be transparent and people are hungering for authenticity. Yeah, right. I agree. Thanks, Carrie. You're welcome, Gabe. Any other questions from anybody? And then I got a couple of questions for you guys. I've got another question, but I didn't yeah. want to jump in before. No, go ahead, Esther. That's great. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I'll ask it right, but I've just been thinking about this issue of um, grief and suffering and that a lot of times cynicism can come out of a deep wound or a deep, you know, a deep grieve, grieving period where someone stops hoping like you've talked about and, and like you talk about in the book. But then I think in the Christian world, a lot of times people go to the other extreme of when someone's going through grief and suffering, just using the Christian platitudes of, you know, God's going to work everything together for good and and all of those things and not really leaving space for the important work of grief that that someone needs to have in their life before they can be healed. So I guess the question is just... How do you think grief plays a role in this whole issue of, of cynicism? And, and how can we as a Christian culture do a better job of allowing that room for grief without pushing people towards cynicism, I guess, and, mm. and still holding on to hope? Yeah, there's a really important um, correlation there that you're teasing out, which is interesting. Uh, one of the things that helped me recover from burnout, I know the question was about cynicism, but I think the two, you know, highly cynical people are often somewhat burnt out people. So I don't think the two, even though they're two sections of the book, I don't think they're entirely unrelated. But, you know, one of the things that really helped me work through my, my burnout was learning how to grieve my losses. And I think you're right. I think you used the phrase, the work of grief. Grief actually is a work. And I think we live in an instant culture and we're not very good in the church at giving people permission to be honest. So somebody shows up with tears, we want to snap our fingers, and it's like, oh, you're all better now. No, I'm not all better now. You know, grief is a process. And that goes right back to the 23rd Psalm. You know, the way we would write it is, yea, though I walk past the valley of the shadow of death. And it's like, no, you actually go through it. You actually go through the valley of the shadow of death. And God says, it's when you're going through the valley that I'll actually be there. And I spent the first decade of leadership ignoring that. And what happened, Terry Wardle, a mentor of mine, said, you got to grieve your losses. And I didn't. Someone would leave the church and be like, yeah, whatever. You know, you do a tough funeral and you're like, I'm okay. I'll go back to work. And those things kind of bottle up. 
And they, they bottle up inside you until, you know, you either explode or implode. And I basically imploded. And I spent August of 2006 essentially crying in all my spare time. And I think it was just all those losses just said, okay, we've got to come out. And so I made up for decades of grieving in the course of a month. And since then, I've, I've become, first of all, much more honest in helping people grieve. I had this sad job of calling a friend of mine who I've known for years. His uh, 30-year-old daughter died uh, on the weekend of cardiac arrest. And, you know, just talking to him. And we hadn't talked in a few years, but it's one of those friendships that just picks up where it left off. And, you know, the younger me would have said a whole lot more in that call. But what are you going to say? Nothing, nothing I say is going to bring her back. And so I just kind of listened. And I said I was sorry. And that we're praying for him. And that, yes, of course, I'm going to help with the service. And, you know, sometimes that's all you need. And we've got to get comfortable in the awkward silences. And, you know, Job's friends weren't really much help to him at the end of the day. Probably the person who did the best was at the beginning. They just sat there with him for seven days and said nothing. That was probably the best his friends did in the entire book. And I think you've just, I've learned that. And some of that comes with grieving my losses where, you just want somebody to kind of understand and go, yeah, that stinks. And you're like, oh, thank you for acknowledging that. So I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I think for the cynic, like if I don't grieve my losses, it probably makes me more cynical. Like when we were writing the book and reaching out for endorsements, we were actually going to put a forward in this book. Now, I'm glad it doesn't have one in the end, but I reached out to two people I've known for years and said, could you write the forward? And both of them, for independent reasons, said no. And I was pretty devastating. I'm like, I just thought they'd say yes. Um, If I didn't grieve that on the day that happened and, you know, the period after that happened, I think I would be bitter and resentful, but I'm not. Like, I've actually talked to those guys multiple times over the past nine months, whenever, since that's been. And we get along great. It wasn't personal at all. But but, you know, the cynic would be like, oh, well, that guy is blank or, you know. And so you just, you just can't live there. And so I think you're, you're absolutely perceptive in making that connection. Thanks. Any other questions? Or I'll flip the mic. Can I add one thing or, and ask yeah, you please another do. question? Okay. Um, and I know you're pretty close friends with him and you've interviewed him. But Craig Groeschelle uh, is yeah. releasing a book called Hope in the Dark. And it yes. literally just encap- encapsulates what you were saying because it's he's uh, preach he's preaching through Habakkuk at his church and he's talking about how authentic Habakkuk is with regards to grief and you know speaking to God on behalf of the pains of people and I listened to only the first part of his sermon on that but it really really Esther would probably hit home on you know what you're speaking to about the grieving process and what God actually gets from that, the glory he gets from that. So it's really interesting. I've got a copy. He, uh, he uh, got, it got sent to me. And so it's on my to-read list. That's, that's really good. And we need to do so much of a better job on that. And I agree. Uh, the church answers haven't worked for the world for a long time, like the simple answers, and they're not working in the church anymore either. So it's time to actually embrace it. And ironically, the Bible's great at it. I mean, so many Psalms are Psalms of lament, Habakkuk, I mean, you look at the minor prophets, my goodness, there's a lot of people who embrace grief in scripture. Okay, here's my question for you guys, and I'd like to hear if I can from as many of you as I can before we're done today. I would love to know what hit you the most and why it hit. I mean, authors always want to know that, but I would just love to know as we talk about, you know, irrelevance, compromise, burnout, um, pride, emptiness, cynicism, and whatever else was in the book. What, which, which, what hit you the most and, and why? I'm just curious. Well, of course, the cynicism. I actually went to Rethink Leadership in 2017, I think, and I heard you give a talk at the end. And, you know, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but your talk like was so unbelievably authentic and it really spoke to me and it sticks out in my mind. But I know you kind of you were overviewing this idea of cynicism. I, ne- I had never heard a leader talk about it, like a, a pastoral leader talk about it 
in a way that it could become a discussion. It was always more like something that you hide in a sense. You Don't know? be cynical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So when uh, I read that and the part about the couple that you initially, when you initially planted the church, how you did so much for them, it really spoke to me because like you said, not grieving when people from the church hurt you, like, cause you're like, oh, I'm tough one. That doesn't bother me or oh, right. who cares, you know, that they laughed or they're, you know, putting me on blast on Facebook or saying nasty. I don't care about that. You know, I'm just going to like, I think it's, it, I've noticed that it's a pattern that does kind of bottle up. And it made me really become aware of how I'm not particularly authentic about that kind of stuff. And I really, you know, it's a blind spot because I feel like in the name of strength, we sacrifice some of that authenticity. So that spoke to me a lot like that. That was worth the book alone, just that chapter. And, and then the second, of course, was the burnout, like the burnout test. When you ask those questions at the end, like, you know, how many of these relate to where you're at? And I, I don't want to tell you what my score is because that, you know, <laughs> I just don't want yeah. to do that. It was just, it was really, it was, it, it was, was a little too real. Was it? Yeah. yeah. I, I just was like, I think I'm just going to finish this early. I'll put this on my unfinished book list, but it, it, um, those two things in the book really, uh, you know, kind of made me do some major, uh, self exploration there. I appreciate that. Yeah, that cynicism was actually the sample chapter I wrote, and I thought, I'm just going to test out that material. That was over a year ago now, and I'm glad God used it to connect. Thanks, Sam. Uh, anyone else? Oh, you go, John. Go for it. On the compromise, and uh, there's a statement there you said, competency, uh, com competency get you in the room, character keeps you in the room. Mm -hmm. Working, uh, you also said, working uh, twice as much on... Uh, on your character, uh, that really yeah, something that really stood out to me, and and really something that is going to follow me. And of course, you can study a lot, and you can read a lot of books, and you think that you're really going to reach there. But um, really, working on your character is uh, even more important. That you don't you you don't just get it uh, by reading all the worlds of books, but you're really going to work on your character and how you treat people, how you work with people, how you, yeah, everything really in it. So, so that's, uh, that, that really something that stood out to me. So thank you. I appreciate that, John. You know, I finished that over a year ago, the manuscript for the book. And unfortunately it's become even more pertinent in the last year that it's, you know, confidence gets you in the room, but it's character that keeps you in the room. And it's really what your kids mm -hmm. and the people close to you remember. Who else was next? I mm -hmm. know there was someone else. Yeah. So, um, I, th I think burnout is that was b besides the section on character, the section on burnout was um, another one that's that's convicting. And I think for anyone who's <laughs> who's worked with uh, ministry in any any shape or form, burnout is something that you will never see coming <laughs> usually. Mm. Um, and you don't until it's too late. And at that point, when you sense it, it's you're you're done. Um, and so it was it it's. I think that's something I've I've learned from, but it still creeps up on you, and so it's it's just a good reminder. That was a great reminder. Um, I think there was a line in there. I can't remember if it was in burnout or not, but it's just stuck with me about the lies we tell ourselves, and uh, that's something I think is very easy to convince yourself of. Is you're you're in ministry, and so you you tell yourself, "Well, I just need to do this one this one last thing," you know, or you know, Carrie, you talked earlier about setting firm boundaries. And the, the best thing I ever did, uh, was set boundaries and, um, for my marriage, for my family, for my own self, you know, to say hey, it's Friday and that's my day off and I'm not going to do anything. Um, even if there's, there's always something to do. There's, I know, you know but yeah, it, it's, it's endless. <laughs> Ministry's so, never uh, done. I appreciated that. Good for you. Right. Good for you for, for taking that time off. And it's amazing that the world is still spinning when you show up again the next day or a couple of days later, isn't it? It's incredible. It survived it, without you. You know, it is. And the thing I've, I've told people, and, um, I, and I'm sure someone wiser than me is the one who told me this too, but um, you know, if I'm gone tomorrow, uh, the church is still going to go on. And you know, Jesus has been around for uh, a lot longer than I have. And uh, his his power is greater than I, I will ever know. And so if I'm gone and no one is around to do my job, people are still going to get to know Jesus and they're still going to meet him face to face. 
and uh, encounter the spirit. And that's still going to happen. So, um, you know, that's, that's always a very, uh, that's a sobering thing to remind myself to that. It's not about me. Um, I'm just here as an instrument. And, and if I try to make it about me, that's when burnout will take over. Oh, true. <laughs> so true. Any last thoughts, anyone else as we wrap up? I've got one, Carrie. Yeah, I'll just Esther. share the thing that resonated with me the most, I think is actually the chapter on cynicism because mm-hmm. I I've always been a skeptical person. I just tend to look at everything, you know, through that, the lens of, well, is that really true? Uh, and so I think that that personality type, and I also have very high expectations of myself and other people. And so I have found myself, especially in ministry, um, sometimes being di- disappointed in people when they don't do what what I thought they were going to do. And I think reading through this chapter kind of just reminded me that that is the starting point of cynicism. <laughs> and if I start to generalize, like you talk about the problem of generalizing, if I start to generalize that one incident to, well, that's what everybody's going to do. So I might as well just do this all myself. That's a really dangerous place to be. So I just really appreciated that. And I also loved that your, your uh, cure for that is curiosity and asking questions and thinking about, you know, trying to, to think about the situation that person might be in and asking them questions rather than making assumptions from my own mind. So I appreciated that. Really appreciate that. Well, Esther and the whole crew, thank you so much. I know we've had Adam on this call and uh, Gabe or Gabriel, John and Sam and Dylan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys. And uh, thanks for taking listeners a little bit behind the scenes and asking some questions about Didn't See It Coming. And I really hope uh, that this is a book God uses to help a lot of people inside the church, outside the church, in leadership and in life and in all kinds of walks. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, I just love this whole launch team. They've been great. I've been very actively involved in that Facebook group. We're talking every day. I'm shooting videos for them, giving them behind the scenes. And I, I found this. If you give... Uh, people don't mind sharing. If you, if you, if they know that you're not just, hey, what can I get from you? If you really want to give to them and give them a, a high quality experience, then, then they don't mind sharing your message. So those are some things I've been learning about launch. And thanks guys for uh, the questions that you brought to me. If you want to learn more about the new book, you can go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. And I want to let you know about a couple of things that we put into that site at launch. So if you scroll down the page a little bit, you will see there's a couple of tests there. And one is how cynical are you? And the other is, am I burning out or whatever we call them in the end. Uh, But you can take these really quick little quizzes. That's another tip. People love to take quizzes and they love to see themselves in the story. Now, these are not scientific polls or anything. And we, we put a legal disclaimer in just so nobody sues us. But like, how do you know you're cynical? Like, how do you know you're cynical? How do you know whether you're burning out? Have you got low-grade burnout? Are you healthy? And so if you go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com and scroll down, you'll actually see those two tests. I would encourage you to take them. Um, Number one, you may want to take them to see if you're burning out or to see how cynical you are. But number two, that can provide a way for you to uh, really get your message out there. Because if people take the test, they're more likely to share it with their friends and say, hey, I'm actually pretty healthy, but you may want to take this test too. Or, you know, they see the results. Uh Uh-oh, I'm almost burned out. At that point, we recommend they go see a doctor. Hundreds of people have taken the test in the first two days. So again, that's a way of adding value to people's lives without just saying, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. So uh, I think those days are, are gone. Now, do I want to sell books? Yeah, of course I want to sell books. Nobody, it's what John Acuff told me once, you know, nobody, nobody writes a book hoping nobody will read it, but you've got to figure out a way. And I think this is the key to marketing today. You got to figure out a way to help people, whether they ever buy your book or not. And that's the whole premise of what I do here on the podcast and on the blog is you get this for free. Uh, does it, is it free to produce? No, I pay a producer to do the audio. I pay a show notes manager and, and a podcast manager. I've got a team and a crew and it costs money to host this and distribute it and do artwork and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, is this cheap? No, of course it's not cheap. Um, but I want it to be free to you. And then as a business model, what you do, Brady Shearer and I talked about this uh, a little bit in the freemium business model, content marketing business model. That's episode 209 of this podcast a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, but what you do is you get a small percentage of the things that you sell to pay for all the stuff you give away for free. And I think that is a great model in the new economy. Plus, it you know, if, if everything you do is behind the paywall, that gets rid of the little guy. And I remember when our churches were really small, you know, when you have six people, it's not like they give you a huge education budget. So I've always valued free and I want my free content to be better than most people's paid content. And then the paid content actually supports all the free content. So anyway, that's a little bit of the deconstruction of the business model behind this blog, the podcast and everything I do, a little bit about the launch strategy. And we had a fun time meeting some of the members of the launch team. So whatever message you're trying to get out there, whether that is for your church or for your business, I hope this helps. Uh, Thank you again for an incredible couple of launch weeks. I don't know where we're going to be by the time this this releases, but man, to be the number one, two, and three uh, new release, best-selling books in Christian leadership in in the first moments of launch has been just incredible. And I want to say thank you so much for that. You guys, really incredible people. If you haven't checked out the book yet, you can head over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com learn everything about it. And uh, yeah, that was fun to empty the notebook today. We are going to continue to take notes on this launch and everything we can learn. I'd love to hear from you in the comments, see what you are learning. So you can find that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 216, or just go, if you can't spell that, to leadlikeneverbefore.com and click on the blog and you'll find episode 216 or on the podcast, but it's the blog part that has the show notes. So anyway, hope this helps. Hey, we are back to regularly scheduled episodes next week. And my guest is an up and coming preacher named Andy Stanley. If you've ever heard of him, uh, Andy's very generously gave me 90 minutes of his time. And we talk about how to share your faith in a post-Christian world, how to respond to your critics. That was a pretty emotional part of the interview, at least for me. And then how Andy overcame his judgment, his judgmentalism. Uh, Francis Chan is also coming up. Man, Francis was so raw, so real. Scott Harrison and I in a live podcast interview on how to relate to high capacity leaders and donors, the growth of Charity Water. Rachel Cruz is coming up, man. That was a blast. Max Lucado, Patrick Lencioni, and Levi Lusco. Okay. I'd say that's a, that's a decent lineup. That's at least like a B lineup. <laughs> I'm so excited for these episodes. Again, if you subscribe, they show up automatically on your devices and it's free. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth to help you lead like never before.